how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up with, without mercy all his habitations of Jacob. And in the wrath of he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to ground this honor, the king, kingdom of its rulers. He has cut down uh, in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent, bent his bow like an enemy with the with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its places. He has laid, up, he has laid in ruins and strongholds and he has multiplied in the daughter of, Z of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste, waste in his booth like a garden, laid in ruin his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, um, and, he, and his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls the walls of her places. They raise a glamour in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He set out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampant and wall to lament, they languished together, they languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground, he has ruined and broken his bars. Her king and princes are among the nations, the law is no more, and the prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence, they have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach curns. The bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants, infants and babies faint in the streets of the, in the, streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the seas of the city, as, the, as, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, what can I say for you? To what compare, compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? Virgin of O virgin daughter of Zion, 
for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that, that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he proposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night give yourselves no rest your eyes no respite arise cry out in the night at the beginning of the of the night what watches pour out your heart like water before your presence of the lord lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at, at the head of every street, look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat fruit of their womb, the children of the tender care of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My my young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtered without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no, no one escaped, escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. God is only love, people today uh, would try to say. Uh, he would never do anything to hurt someone or, or punish someone. Uh, nothing so negative as that could come from God. God is love. Uh, clearly, though, uh, the Bible disagrees with, with something about that popular sentiment today. Uh, because in many places of Scripture, like in Lamentations 2 that we've just read, uh, God is revealed to us as a God of anger, a God who does indeed bring hurt and pain. And the context here, by the way, is, is that God has just seen to the complete destruction of Jerusalem, the city he had once marked out as holy, 
the capital of the remnant of his people in Judah. And yes, a remnant of those people because he had previously seen to the wholesale destruction of the larger portion of his people in the north, in Israel, whom, whom he had given into the hands of Assyria many years before this to conquer and destroy. Now at the time of Lamentations, this is around 586 BC, uh, God has sent the Babylonians against that remnant of his people still there to have them too taken out of the Holy Land and into exile. Uh, Any who resisted that were to be killed by famine or sword. Contrary to current opinion, there is wrath in this God against sin, even the sin of his own people. If we see it very clearly uh, from verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. We cannot miss it, can we, in scriptures like this? And so as much as the popular sentiment today just just wants to reject this idea, this idea that God could be wrathful, to just pick out one of those words there in Lamentations 2, I'm sorry, but the scriptures most clearly and painfully reveal this to be true. He had people slaughtered without pity at the end there in verse 21. In the day of his anger, verse 22, no one survived. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that in our minds and in our hearts with with the other truth that we do know does run through Scripture, that God is good? Well, here's the clarifier on that popular sentiment on God. He is love, but he is holy love. He is too pure to, to look upon our evil and agree. Here's a couple of things then we need to try to catch if we're, if we're going to understand God better in terms of his wrath. Uh, for one, we need to understand the why of God's wrath. Uh, he's not cruel or careless in, in his wrath. It's not just one of his attributes that's just out of control. No, his anger is specifically focused on sin. And we thought about that word last week, uh, that all humanity is fallen in sin. Well, today we have to come to terms, therefore, with the divine response to that sin. Wrath. God must respond in righteousness. With fierce anger, therefore, if he is in any way just about sin, that's how he must respond. And, of course, he he is perfectly just on the matter of sin. He is altogether righteous 
is God. And so, so, so we cannot simply, you know, not care about sin the way that we might want him to not care about sin. And yet as clear as it is uh, in its logic, it's still a very hard concept for us to accept and come to terms with, uh, without doubt, uh, that a good God would have wrath. There's a parable in Scripture that maybe could help. There were two men in a certain city, uh, the one rich and the other poor. Uh, The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him uh, and with his children. It it used to eat of his morsel and and drink from his cup and and lie in his arms. It, It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man and uh, the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to, to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Some of you know this is the parable uh, the prophet Nathan spoke to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to read it later. Uh, but we could ask the question too, after just hearing those kind of details, well, how does that parable make you feel? That a rich man with, in the scheme of things, everything in the world could, could be so greedy and selfish like that and so bent on trying to, to build up his own uh, personal empire that he hoards up out of all God's blessings to him and, and at the same time be so heartless and cruel that he would, he would turn around and, and cheat or, or steal away from this other poor person, the only one thing that that poor person had. How does it make you feel to hear that story? David shows us how to respond to such evil in the next verse. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man in that parable. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. That, my friends, is the right response to that awful sin. The wrong response would be to just turn a blind eye and pretend as if it didn't happen. How could anyone just turn a blind eye and not care about that story? Uh, And yet that's what popular sentiment wants God to do when he considers our sin uh, these days. Just turn a blind eye to what we're doing. Pretend we haven't done what we've done. Just not be deeply troubled by the wicked things that we do. That God should not grieve for those we have sinned against. That he should not defend the poor and the oppressed in this world and not care in the least about the good that he created always being plunged into ruin at our hands. We wouldn't put it all that way, of course, but that's what's at stake in our denial of God's wrath against sin. But wrath is a right response to sin. Do you see that? From a holy God, wrath is a right response to sin. In Lamentations 2, we we see how bleak it ought to be when God's good and righteous wrath against sin comes down. 
His own people here had sinned against him, scorned him, rejected him and and just uh, went on their own way in their selfish and idolatrous lives in defiance of him. What would we rather God should do about that? Just pretend it never happened? Uh, Another thing we ought to catch about God's wrath uh, is that he is unfathomably patient in the way he lets it unfold, it seems, in Scripture. He warned the people of Judah time and time again over many, many years that the wrath here in in Lamentations 2 came after a very long time and with with much warning from God, as we see through his prophets. Uh, We see it in verse 17 in, in that chapter. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. God is not just as exceedingly patient with his wrath, but uh, he warns people too. Indeed, that was a key role of his prophets and apostles who wrote down these scriptures. Um, This particular warning, I think in verse 17, I think it points all the way back to scriptures like Leviticus chapter 26, before they went into the promised land we're speaking of here. Words that were written there of such great warning that that if you were to go to Leviticus 26 and read that, you you would wonder, you would question how how the people could, could then have pursued sin in such a way as they did. But they did. And yet, despite what was then 800 years of warning all the way through those scriptures, that God was patiently warning them, eventually his wrath had to come down in Lamentations 2. Judah was punished. Judah was banished from the Holy Land for their ongoing sin. The same can also be said of Israel's entry into that land when when Leviticus was given by God to his people way back when. Because when they entered the land, they had been the agents of God's wrath against the prior inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And and there too, we see those two same things about God's wrath. One, these wrath is not random or capricious or mean. It is a focused and it is a righteous response to sin. The Canaanites were living outside of God in idolatry and sin. Uh, And two, as I say, that God had been exceedingly patient with his wrath. Uh, 430 odd years actually had passed since God promised that land to Abraham to when his descendants finally went in. Uh, Why so long? Well, because God was being patient with the sin of the Canaanites. So we must catch both those two things if we're going to understand this part of God. Uh, Wrath must eventually come against all sin or God is not just and righteous on the score of sin, but God is patient in carrying out that wrath. For all the difficulty that it carries to us over God's wrath, uh, ultimately Lamentations is a book of great hope, as indeed the scriptures are too. Uh, This is the book, though, in which we read such beautiful truths like in the middle in chapter 3 and verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is the true part of that popular sentiment today about God, better than they can capture it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The next verse we read, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. 
therefore I will hope in him. So they cry out to God for mercy, such as uh, what seems like might be happening in verses 18 to 20 of what we just read there in chapter 2, pouring out their hearts and lifting up their hands to who? To the Lord. Uh, Towards, of course, the great petition that comes at the very end of the book, in the end of chapter 5, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And rightly so, with that great hope, because even in the ancient warnings, back in places like Leviticus 26, God had promised to restore them. That he would restore them even from punishment in captivity, should such a punishment come. And of course it has. So Leviticus 26.44, if you read the, the, the devastating warnings, of course, you then read this from God. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. There's the covenant word, by the way, coming back from our earlier thoughts in the series a couple of weeks ago. Despite humanity breaking covenant through scripture, God is faithful to his word. So the distraught Jews in captivity in Babylon here are right to call out in the book of Lamentations to the God who put them there in that captivity that they might be restored because God had long ago written that he would do so in his word. And he did. FYI, God preserved a remnant and restored his people to their land after 70 years of this exile. Uh, In his mercy, that mercy that never ends and is new every morning, God chose to reconcile and restore some people to himself. Uh, Which brings us to the other side of today's theme, a theme that runs all the way through God's scriptures together with his wrath. That as much as God is a God of wrath, he is also a God of mercy. Which means that while all of us have sinned against God, some of us will be saved from his wrath. But how, we, we have to wonder and should ask, how, after everything we just processed about God's wrath and his, his right wrath, well, how can, how can that righteous wrath of God be turned off? Well, it seems from Scripture that it can't be. It can't be turned off. His good wrath against sin must still come down. So back to the original problem then, how can there be mercy from God? In in what can these captives in Lamentations possibly hope? How can their judgment not stand? How can they possibly dream of being restored? They, They have sinned after all and the judgment is right. And if God's wrath must fall down, as it has done, how can there still be hope of mercy from God? Well, God has answered that conundrum for us all through his word. In his grace to us, he has provided a mechanism by which he can fully carry out his right wrath against our sin, but spare us, the sinners, And that mechanism is by way of a substitute. 
a substitute in our place onto which his wrath can come down instead of coming down on you or I. That's what the Bible speaks of as atonement, if you know that word. Uh, Atonement, that by letting his wrath fall on a substitute, a sacrifice put forward in our place, God can still be just and righteous about our sin and yet at the same time he can then, of course, be merciful to you and I. It's what's behind the Old Testament sacrifices that God allowed for, if you've read through those before, in scriptures like Leviticus. The idea of atonement, that sinners who have broken God's covenant and put themselves out of relationship with God can be reconciled to him again, brought back at one with God through this at-one-ment or, or atonement process that God has provided for their sin. In the New Testament, we are explicitly told that those Old Testament sacrifices of atonement had had been symbolic all those years, that they were just shadows and, and copies of the true sacrifice of atonement that God would put forward in his good time, once for, for all time, for the sin of his people, whether, whether in ancient exile Judah uh, or here in this room today. And, and that he did that in Jesus, who was crucified to atone for our sin. Uh, see if you can catch some of the words around this idea. In, in Romans chapter 3, for example, uh, came up in our small groups this week, um, Romans 3 verse 20. So too, this is what the children are thinking of out the back there today. We have some good chats around dinner. Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus couple of big words in there. The one big word in there, propitiation, simply speaks to that idea I mentioned, that the, the substitute sacrifice involved in the atonement of our sin. God's righteous wrath against our sin was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, poured out in full so that, so that you and I, the sinners involved in the sin, we may go free without... This is the thing, without compromising God's righteousness against sin. That there in all of that is the mechanism of the atonement of our sin. A substitute, a substitute to absorb God's good wrath. And since God's right punishment of our sin, death, has now come down upon Jesus, God can now declare you and I, through faith in Jesus, 
he can declare us just, which is what's behind the other big word in that scripture from Romans around all this, justification. We are justified by God on the score of sin. We are legally declared by God to be just, even though in reality, of course, we are sinners. And all and only because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which was poured out in our place, which in the Old Testament language has atoned for our sin, atoned for God's wrath against our sin, to be more specific. When we come to faith, trusting in what Jesus did for us on on that cross, we, we, we are now at one again with God. And we always will be. Because the good and righteous wrath that our sin deserves has been satisfied now in falling instead upon Jesus. If we don't put our trust in that which God has done to atone for our sin, then we must still face God's wrath because his wrath must come down. But for his atonement of all who believe. The New Testament unpacks that idea of Jesus atoning for our sin uh, much more specifically in greater depth uh, all over the New Testament scriptures and with a whole suite of words around it like Christ being our sacrifice, our ransom, our redemption, the means of our reconciliation with God, the means by which we are justified before God, as he says in Romans 3 there, the propitiation that God put forward to atone for our sin. And all of this is, of course, the basic Christian gospel, that Joseph and Mary should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. None of those glorious words all the way through those New Testament scriptures, none of them that explore and explain that Christian gospel of how God atones for his people's sin, none of them make any sense at all. Unless we first take hold of that much harder concept in our minds of God's wrath against our sin. Both of those truths go together hand in hand and and both of them are vital to understand. Without wrath, I mean, there's simply no need for the atonement of sinners like you and I. But if we then looked at it the other way, well, without atonement, there's no escaping God's wrath. Without wrath, the Christian gospel is lost. What do we do in our simplistic thinking? We, I mean, we just want forgiveness without the wrath. We, we don't, we just, why do we need that is what our kind of hearts and, and minds would say. But, but what that means, if you do slowly think it through, is that you know, we want our sin to, to not be offensive to God, as the scriptures de- declare. And ultimately what we want then is that God would be unjust on the matter of sin, Uh, That's what we do without realising it. That's what we do when we deny the idea that God should have wrath against our sin. We make God unjust on the question of sin. We make God a God of our own fashioning too, a God who endorses us in our sin, a God, therefore, who sits under us in our sin. Uh, Without atonement, though, on the other hand, We make a total mockery of why Jesus came and why he died on the cross. Or at best we make that into some kind of tragic mistake uh, that Jesus was wrong or 
or mistaken or something, or, or he was too weak or too foolish or something, uh, that evil got the better of God for that moment in time, that the devil in some way won. And worse than that too, we, we make Jesus out to be a liar because this is why Jesus said he came to die. We thought of that before in, in the creed that we were thinking of. Here's another one in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was sent and he came. He was given and he gave himself up explicitly for the atonement of sin. Because otherwise, we must suffer God's wrath. Both of these things, of course, flow straight out of what we've been looking at in all the previous weeks this term. So without these two difficult words today, wrath and atonement, the rest of the things we've looked at cannot find closure. They just can't be resolved. And, and I hope you can see why the church needs to preach these things. And all the time why we need to preach these things. If the church today doesn't preach these things, then they are not putting forward the whole counsel of God. They are actually, in fact, like these false prophets of old Judah in verse 14, failing to speak of such hard words of scripture, like sin and judgment last week and, and now wrath and atonement today, to speak of all kinds of other little things along the way, but to stay silent on such things as these would, would be to let disaster just come down on God's people, the way these old false prophets did. But to see this in scripture and, and make this clear is it's a life-giving thing that we can share with our neighbours and friends because these truths give us a right grounding of where we stand under God, a right sense of how offensive our sin is in his eyes. David flew off in anger at the rich man in that parable who, who stole, stole uh, the, the poor man's only little lamb and and yet David had done something far, far worse in real life than that man. You are that man, Nathan said to David, when David's rage was flaring up over the guy in the parable. You are that man. We, meanwhile, would stand back from both of those stories and say something like, well, I haven't done anything like either of those guys. I don't have that kind of sin hanging over my life. Well, to which we might... First of all, say, only but for the grace of God if you don't have that kind of sin over your life. And yet, some of us do. But then as we all sat and reflected through Scripture more honestly on these points and, and more biblically on these hard points, well, we might come to see in time that, wait a minute, all sin is offensive to a holy, holy, holy God. And our sin too. And that actually we've got plenty of sin in all kinds of areas of our life. We're just real good at brushing it off and brushing it away like it's nothing when it's in our life is the thing. And of course Jesus puts his finger on the truth. 
let's, let's imagine we don't have a sin like David's particular sins in 2 Samuel 12, committing adultery with a, a man's wife and, and then killing the man. What did Jesus come and explain? When you hate your brother, you're committing murder in your heart. When you look lustfully at someone, you're committing adultery in your heart. The essence of sin is in every human heart. Not so easily then can we hide behind that old line, there but for the grace of God would go I. Uh, Truth is, in our hearts, we've been down that same road many times over by now. Many times over. But hear the good news, the gospel of God's wrath and atonement for our sin. God put forward a propitiation for our sin, uh, the atonement of our sin that comes in Jesus' blood. And all who receive that atonement by faith in Jesus Christ are justified by God and will no longer therefore receive his wrath. Hallelujah and amen, I reckon we should say. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your word to us in Scripture and we thank you, therefore, for your word today and for the very hard word today uh, that speaks of your wrath against sin, a a concept that just doesn't sit right with us uh, in our own minds, but there it is in Scripture and, and it's everywhere in Scripture. Help us to understand this aspect of you, this aspect of how you are wrathful and and, and angered by sin. Help us to understand too how good that is of you and that actually we wouldn't want a God who wasn't such as that. And, And from that understanding, Father, help us to rejoice then and rejoice all the more in your gracious atonement that you put forward to save us. Help us to see from your word that you put forward that means of our atonement once for all time in Jesus Christ, that it all rests on that which you did, on Jesus who died for us, that we should be saved and spared from your wrath and brought back as we are to be reconciled to you. And from all that, Father, we pray you fill our hearts with trust then in what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and that you would teach us how now to move forward more clearly unto him. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.